Well, good morning. My name is Whitley Bechtel, and I have the privilege of reading our scripture for this morning. It comes from Acts 8, um, verses 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made, made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And now Pastor Benjamin will come and preach our sermon for this morning. As we begin this morning, I want to start with a few updates. Uh, First, another staff update. I mentioned last week that David McHale has arrived, and that's a wonderful thing. He's our new associate pastor of Connections. Um, He's going to be serving over small groups, preach six times a year, and do a whole bunch of other things to help our church. And he'll begin tomorrow June 1st. Related to connections, um, you heard Mike say it in his prayer. Michael Aiken has been a pastor here at the church for most of the last 20 years. Sometimes on staff, sometimes in, in the most recent years not on staff, but as a volunteer pastor elder. And I just want to acknowledge that uh, that Sunday we hired David as a church or, or affirmed him um, overwhelmingly as a, a, our pastor of connections, we also um, described how we were going to hire Mike Aiken during this interim season to help our church. And so if you haven't seen Mike doing many things, that's not because he hasn't. Uh, the goal, in fact, was to do a lot of things that aren't necessarily visible, but are very important. And so he's been caring for our church overseeing some deacon ministry things, overseeing some small group things, and doing all sorts of pastoring uh, in addition to his regular day job for the last three months. And that will continue for another week or so. But thank you to you, Michael. And if you see Michael uh, around in the next few weeks, be sure to thank him for the service he's done. Related to church and opening back up... um, some of you will have seen, and, and, and maybe not, you, you may be hearing this for the first time. We're going to open up, Lord willing, June 7th, so next Sunday. Um, I say sort of because it's not a full opening like we've been open, you know, prior to March. But it is a start in our reopening sequence here. So we're going to run three services of about 75 each, 8.30, 10, and 11.30. Um, the first and third, so 8.30 and 11.30, will be here in the sanctuary with 75 people. That's a number we feel like we can keep distant. We'll have some pews roped off and, and all of those sorts of things. The middle service at 10 o'clock will be just outside um, in the front yard. We'll stand up front and have a guitar and a, sing, a singer. I don't know who that will be yet necessarily. And then uh, someone to preach and 
You can come. We'll, we'll have chairs set up. But if you want to bring an umbrella, if it's really hot, I don't know what the temperature will be. Hopefully it's good enough to have it. If it's terrible, we'll just have to cancel. Um, we're going to try and do some sort of ticket system that you can grab them online. Probably Wednesday at 12 o'clock noon, we'll be releasing those. And of course, they don't cost anything. But that will just be a way for us to help keep track of who's coming and kind of manage the numbers that are in the building. There are a lot more details that I put in a letter, and I'll have another letter that comes out this week, and I'm not going to bore us with the fine print, but I do want to say this. I don't know whether it's right for you to come back yet or not. That's a decision you're going to have to make, and in fact, we really can't have everybody come back, because if everybody comes back, there's not enough room yet. We're, we're, We're kind of banking on kind of our informal polling that that there's about half of the people that are going to come back later, and that's great. Um, whether you want to come back now or you want to come back later, th- that's a decision you're going to make. And, and whatever you make, that, that, that's okay. What I want to say, and this is my pastoral encouragement to you, would be that whenever you come back in person, that you would come back with your heart now. That you'd be rooting for our church and praying for our church and helping us do this well and thoughtful. And there are so many tensions we're trying to navigate as a pastoral staff and elder board. And so we just want your help and we want your encouragement and your, your heart to come with us. Even if there's ways that you think we could do things better or differently, tell us that. Um, and we want to listen to that. But we, we would love for you to be rooting for us. And so with all of those things said, I want to turn our attention to the passage that Whitley just read a moment ago from Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 8. We were in Acts chapter 7 back in February and now we turn again to that book. And as we look at this passage, what we see is a group of believers that had significant external obstacles and internal obstacles stacked against them. Not just against them, to the spreading of gospel joy. I'll say that again. We see a group of believers who had external and internal uh, obstacles stacked against the spreading of gospel joy. And when you say it like that, it probably sounds pretty similar to what we're experiencing. Now, what they were experiencing isn't exactly what we're experiencing. Their obstacles aren't exactly our obstacles. But when I think about our church or any church here in this time of considering reopening, a time where a pandemic has swept the world, we know there are many external and internal obstacles. Just to speak about our own church specifically, let me name a few. I think of... The difficulties of communicating with our church body, emails, live streams, Facebook, YouTube. And we, we are in a, a society where we have about a fifth, like Instagram has ads that run 15 seconds. And if they aren't interesting after four seconds, we swipe. And now I've got to give you fine print details about wearing masks or not wearing masks, indoors, outdoors, Sunday school, no Sunday school, childcare, no child. And like people are bored immediately. It's hard. I think about the, all the people in our church directory. There are 440 people in our church directory when you count children. And we've got to come up with ways to put people in the service in 75 like person groups where we can sit socially. This is hard. 
The foot traffic in and out of the building, in and out of the parking lot, in and out of the sanctuary. Keeping track of how many people are in the building. Child care and children's church and Sunday school. Who's doing the prayers and announcements and are they people that are comfortable doing those things? Same with the worship team. We need a whole nother set of volunteers that are now going to run the cameras. Camera A, camera B. I don't know if you can follow me as I'm doing that or even if you want to. But we've got live stream capabilities. It's all different. That requires one person each week at least and a whole team of people in the weeks to come to run that. Cleaning the building between services and before you arrive. All the issues related to an outdoor service of chairs and social distancing and a volume if we amplify it through speakers that blesses the people who attend but not like uh, blesses the neighborhood by not blowing them out with a huge kind of like you know an outdoor concert we're not at red rocks in you know uh, colorado springs significant external and internal obstacles to spreading gospel joy. Besides just the logistics of reopening, there's the at a heart level of what it means to bless everyone. There are people that are going to feel left out because they have health challenges, because they don't have health challenges, because they want a mask, because they don't want to wear a mask, and a thousand other details that we risk offending people. How, how are we going to go forward in a church? I think Acts has something to say to this. We pick up Acts chapter 1 with these words, and Saul approved of his execution. (laughs) What an obscure way to begin a service and a scripture passage. Like, who is Saul? Whose execution? It's been 14 weeks, Benjamin. What are we talking about? So we need some context. Let me back up and widen out. We begin in Acts chapter 1. We, in the first few verses, we read about a man named Theophilus. Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus in a wider context about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So what we learn from that beginning of the book of Acts is that Acts is volume 2. Luke wrote something similar in his first volume. The volume we call the book of Acts. That he's writing to the office in a wider audience about Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection. And then we pick up in Acts chapter 1, we read in about volume 2 that Jesus, all that he did, kind of, he's, he's, he's risen from the dead and there's 40 days and then he's going to ascend to the throne of the universe. And then all that Jesus does from heaven through his church, that's the book of Acts for the next 30 years. So we've got... The 30 years while Jesus was on earth, and then the 30 years while Jesus is in heaven. That's the book of Acts. What do we read in the middle of the book of Acts? The growth of the church, but many obstacles against the growth of the church. And then when you come to the end of the book of Acts, this is just a wide context, we read of the Apostle Paul in jail, under house arrest, and it says that the word of God was going forward Quote, without hindrance. That's the last word in the Greek um, version of the Bible in the book of uh, Acts, chapter 28, verse 31. The ESV retains that as the same phrase, without hindrance. Which is why we titled the sermon series through the book of Acts, Without Hindrance. Which is not to say there weren't hindrances. There were and are many hindrances. That What Acts is saying there is that 
God in his goodness and his sovereignty was overcoming every hindrance that there might be to spreading gospel joy. So that's the wide context. What do we have in the near context? Again, let me read verses 1 through 3. And Saul approved of his execution. That's Stephen's execution. The first martyr in the book of Acts. That Saul, by the way, is also the Apostle Paul who's going to become a Christian in chapter 9. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This scattering here, this persecution is no small thing. We have many refugees and immigrants who would call this church home. Some of them have left difficult situations. For most of us, we only can imagine what it was like to make the decision, if I continue to follow Jesus, I leave my home and just bring my family. And perhaps a few of my possessions. And I may not get to come back to my home ever. It's a significant decision. Think of a leader in one of the ministries here in our church who's been a part of our church for a few years now. Formerly, he was at another church on staff. And while he was there, he had to evaluate um, theology, as we all do in a sense. But as he was wrestling with things and growing in his faith, he began to come to the conclusions, like, I love my church, and I don't think they're, they're within the realm of orthodoxy, but they... they I, I don't share some of these beliefs with my church and my denomination. And I, I've always thought highly of this person for doing that because it's really difficult to evaluate theology when your paycheck is on the line. And he had to make a hard choice, which he made graciously and thoughtfully and eventually transitioned well. But these are hard choices. This imagery of dragging people off, men and women... Putting them in prison, I think of like this, the Jewish church, this, this fanatical persecution that's happening here is almost like sweeping of rooms that would happen in a military context in an urban combat zone. We also read in the context of this devout men, brave men, doing a bloody, nasty, brave job of going to Stephen and Presumably removing the rocks that he was just stoned with and burying him. And it says they made great lamentation over him. This is something of an aside, but it's important to note. Because it speaks to our context. We did seven or six sermons on lamenting. And I just want to reiterate and draw some of that in here for this moment. It says, these devout men made lamentation over him. They were sad. Now, in the book of James, we're told to rejoice in our sufferings. But what that means is that we take upon ourselves the eyes of faith that can see God doing good things, even in hard things. But it doesn't mean that we look at a hard thing and say, that's okay. 
doesn't mean we look at the coronavirus and COVID and job loss and fears and worries and say, this is okay. What it means to rejoice is to say, okay, I know God can and will use it, but it doesn't mean that this was easy. They named the challenge and the difficulty and they wept. As should we. As did Jesus over the tomb of Lazarus and as did Jesus over the city of Jerusalem when they knew they were going to reject him. Continuing in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The persecution leads to scattering, which leads to preaching. Now I want to make something of this word preaching. The Greek word is euangelion. Now I almost never bring up Greek words. Now here I brought up two without hindrance. I didn't name the word, but now I'm bringing up euangelion. Why? Because it, I, I do that because it's a foreign word to us, but if we transliterated it, meaning we wrote it in English letters, we'd begin to say how that looks kind of familiar. It looks a lot like evangelist or evangelize or evangelical. There's a reason for that. The Greek word for preaching here, euangelizomai, and euangelion for gospel and good news. It means as they're scattered, they went about gospeling. They went about euangelizomaiing. <laughs> they went out evangelizing. They went about spreading the good news, gospeling. And I just highlight that because part of our church denomination is the evangelical free church. And way, I just, I just want to say that, that, that evangelicals are not primarily a voting block. Even though that's how NPR and Fox News often references them. They are people who love the good news of Jesus and share it with others. That's what Stephen was doing. That's what Philip is doing here even as he goes into Samaria, beginning in verse 5. Let me read 5, 6, 7, and 8 again. Philip, now he was referenced in chapter 6 as one of the early deacons. Now he's going about here. We're going to read more about Philip in the coming weeks. But Philip went down to the city of Samaria, or some manuscripts would say a city in Samaria. It's not entirely important which for our purposes, but he went to Samaria. That's a big deal. I'll talk about that in a moment. And proclaim to them the Christ. Above in verse 4, it's the word. Here he's preaching the Christ. They're being used as synonyms for the gospel. Verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. They paid attention to the signs and wonders that accompanied his ministry. Now I don't anticipate we're going to be driving out demons next week. Something strange could happen and perhaps who knows. But I think the, the crazy sign to the watching world for us next week when we open up churches is going to be, boy, there's some people that have humility and unity that's supernatural. That's going to be our signs and wonders if God is pleased to work among us. We'll see. Let's talk about this passage for a few moments. From persecution to scattering, to preaching, to joy. Verse 8. 
So there were much joy in that city. In Samaria, that city, that city in Samaria. You see, as I think about how to apply this to us, there's a certain discomfort before there's a comfort. What do I mean? It's a big deal that the gospel is going to Samaria. You see, if we go back a thousand years from this time, around 900 BC, the great grandson of King David, uh, made, named Rehoboam, made a leadership blunder, and the kingdom of Israel, this one kingdom, split into a northern kingdom, often called Israel in the Old Testament, and a southern kingdom, often called Judea. And that began 200 years of idolatry and terrible kings and disunity among the people of Israel because there were two nations. And this northern kingdom went off into exile. And when they came back, they came back in some ways, half-hearted, more idolatry. And then in the 500s, after the southern kingdom also, they got theirs too and came back. The northern kingdom partly opposed the rebuilding around the 500s of the temple in the southern kingdom. So there's more animosity. And then in the time between the Old and New Testaments, there's this, it's actually the Hanukkah story, among the other things that happened around the 150s B.C., But in parts that, the Sumerian people get in league with those who oppose this rebellion of the Jewish people, um, revolting against those in in the temple, doing, I would say, largely a good thing, trying to restore purity to the temple there. And the Samaritans uh, are, are, we might say, on the wrong side of that. So there's a thousand years of animosity. When you go... To nor- above Israel, you go around Samaria, which is why it's such a big deal that Jesus in John 4 goes through Samaria and talks to a, a wayward woman. We call her the woman at the well. Because he loved the people in Samaria. Just as Philip did. Just did these early gospelers. It doesn't land on us this way. We just read verse 8, we're like, great! People getting saved! That's not how the original audience would have heard this. They would have said, Really? (laughs) Really? Them too? Reminds me of the book of Jonah. Jonah goes to this people in Nineveh, and we read it, we're like, great, people get saved. Jonah's like, them? In fact, he says as much in chapter 3. He's like, I, I knew he's angry. He goes there reluctantly. Actually, gets drugged there, essentially. Gets spit out on the shore when he was trying to go somewhere else by a, some great fish. He you know, grabs his stuff and goes, preaches, angry about it. They get saved. And he's like, dang it, Lord. I knew you were going to save them. Goes to sleep that night. He's in the desert. A plant grows up. He gets under the shade. And he's like, awesome, shade in the desert. The plant withers and dies. And he's angry about it. He's way more angry. He's letting this tiny little detail overshadow the ministry of the gospel going forth. And God comes to him and says, Jonah chapter 4 verses 10 11, this is how the book ends. And the Lord said to Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? 
That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. That phrase about left hand and right hand is a way of saying they're spiritually clueless and they just heard about God. I think there are parallels here for us with Jonah and with Acts chapter 8. There's a way that we could major on all these little details and real and forget what church is about. The gospel going forward to the nations. Masks are important. Let's talk about them. But that's not the big deal. I'm happy to have those conversations. I want to have them. I want to figure this out. I don't have a clue how to do a a hundred things that we have to figure out in the next week. And I need your help. But I want your heart to be aligned with the gospel going forward. Who are the people in your life that need to hear it? Who are the people that need to know this gospel joy? Just to make it even more relevant. Let me say it this way. Like the Samaritans here. You know what this is like? This would be like a police or a chaplain going into a prison. Speaking to four. What is probably former Minneapolis police officers. Sharing the gospel with them and they get saved. And we're like... Too soon, Benjamin. Maybe. That's how they would have read this. And so there's an uncomfortable nature to this passage. Before it's comfortable. But what is that comfort? There is a comfort here. That could swallow up all of our struggles, all of our difficulties, all of our angst, all of the hindrances, external and internal. And it's this. Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And that's what they are. This bunch of disciples who didn't want to be persecuted. Didn't want to have to deal with this mess. Getting scattered and making the best of a terrible situation sharing the gospel with people they didn't even like, and they're getting saved. Because God is big and awesome and powerful, and the gospel is going to go to the nations because Jesus is on the throne of the universe. That's the hope of this passage. And that's my only hope here as I lead our church. I titled the sermon, All Enemies, Foreign and domestic. That line will be like vaguely familiar to some of you and intimately familiar to some. It comes from the oath of enlistment in the United States military. There are slightly different versions of it depending on how you enroll and what branch you're in. But the line reads something like, I, your name, solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And you hear that, and you're like, okay, I get the foreign enemies. Like, there might be other people outside America that would be against America. But what's with this domestic? 
Like, what's, what's that about? Why are there enemies domestic within the United States? I think the book of Acts is telling us against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and you're not an enemy if you're wrestling with what to do here in our church and you're trying to love us well and you have feedback for us as leaders. That doesn't make you an enemy. That makes you... You, that makes you on our team, rooting for us, helping us figure out you're a part of this church. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying in our own hearts, we, we have obstacles to the gospel. And God, in his gospel, is subduing all the obstacles to the gospel in my heart. And in the hearts of those in our church and around this world. And that is good. Who would have thought Paul would get saved? Who would have thought Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Who would have thought Lydia in Acts 16 or the Philippian jailer in Acts 16? Who would have thought this group of sinful, cowardly disciples would be Jesus' witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? My comfort this morning to me and to you is that God is the same God today and yesterday and forever. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're doing in and through us. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness for ways I've struggled to love brothers and sisters over the last 12 and 13 weeks. We've been trying to figure out how to pastor a church during a pandemic. Lord, I I just ask for your forgiveness and your help. Lord, I ask for your help over the next 13 weeks as we try and reconstitute what it means to gather as a church. I pray for our church that you'd make us a group of people that love you and fear you and walk in gospel joy. And we fight in our hearts to believe the best about one another even as we would want them to be doing the same for us. And we pray that by the power of your gospel, you would do more than we could ask or imagine. We pray all of this in the name of the one who sits on the throne of the universe, who ascended there, as we read about in Acts chapter 1, and built a church through a difficult time, and continues to do the same. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.